Hi, it's Nate from C-SPAN. Imagine, 45 years ago when there were just a handful of television networks, C-SPAN first went on the air, bringing an unfiltered view of government directly to America's living rooms. No spin, no commentary, just pure democracy in action. And it's Shannon from C-SPAN. It was a bold experiment. We finally had a front row seat to Congress, the White House, and the campaign trail, all without government funding. As we celebrate 45 years and a legacy of unfiltered access, we ask for your support of a donation in honor of over four decades of service. Your gift, no matter how big or small, will help maintain this vital resource for access to the democratic process. You can help ensure another 45 years of witnessing history unfold and empowering citizens to be informed and engaged in the political process. Visit cspan.org slash donate today and join our 45th anniversary campaign. Thank you for supporting C-SPAN, your unfiltered view of government. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make your gift of support. Thank you. Patty Davis, author of Dear Mom and Dad, a letter about family, memory, and the America we once knew. What should we know about the photo on the cover of your new book? Um, you know, this is a photo that I actually used to have a copy of this photo when I was a, much younger, and I don't know, it got lost over the years. And um, someone at Norton, I don't know who, found it and said this would be a good photo for the cover and it's perfect and i think it i think part of the reason it's perfect is we're all looking in different directions you know my parents sort of look like they're looking the same direction if you really look at it they're kind of not and then i'm of course looking in the complete opposite direction so i i think it um i i think it's appropriate to 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 this book you know do you remember where that was taken Oh, yeah. It was at the Palisades house. Um, so I was about five. We had just moved in there because we we moved there. It was built, as I wrote about, it was built when I was five. And and then my mother got um, got pregnant with Ron um, and had him like, you know, a year later. I was six when he was born. So that's on the deck of the Palisades home with the, that I recognize the tree is, behind us. Is the Palisades home the General Electric house? It was the general, this was the General Electric House that has now been torn down and a large mansion built there. Yes. You, yeah, it's the house I wrote about a lot in, in this book. Yeah, and you wrote that you walked back there and you saw that it was torn down. And what were the memories that came back? Uh, you know, a lot, mostly memories of around the swimming pool. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the pool. Um, I mean, you know, there was a lifetime of memories in that house. Some good, some not so good, um, but there were a lifetime of. Me- I had I had mixed feelings um, watching it be torn down. Um, I, you know, I like I said, there was a mixture of memories there. Um, for a while, that tree that's behind us, that my father loved that tree. He used to trim it himself. He used to get up on a ladder and trim the tree himself. And for a while, the people who were tearing the house down left that tree. And I actually have pictures, some pictures on my phone of the house is gone and that tree is just remaining there. And then I walked by there one day and the tree was gone. And I think it was one of the demolition people or something I asked about it and he said, oh, well, we had an arborist look at it and it was diseased or something like that, you know. But for a while it was, it was sort of startling just to see that tree there I remember the picture I took was against a sort of stormy sky, and that was the only thing that was remaining of the house. Why was it the property? Patty Davis, why was it called the GE house? Um, My father was the host of General Electric Theater at that time. So he was working for General Electric, and he was going out on the road sometimes, and um, well, he was supposed to be promoting their washing machines and refrigerators and all of their electrical appliances he was in fact kind of honing his speech that would become a time for choosing but anyway he was 
he worked for General Electric. And so I don't know what the the agreement was, you know, with with GE, but um, uh, part of it seemed to be that they could do commercials at our house and did quite frequently about their appliances. And so it was an all electric house. I mean, the drapes opened electrically. Um, they had, you know, lights that uh, like a you know very complicated lighting things and stuff with colored lights out in the patio and you know it was a general electric house it was you know people weren't people weren't doing everything electrically at that time <laughs> so it was sort of a it was GE kind of had the market on that what's the format of your latest book the format is it's a letter to my parents and and I have to thank my editor Bob Weil for that for that suggestion. I was in the middle of writing a novel which I've I've now finished and he called me with um with an idea and he said I I um think that this would be a a, a really good idea for you a short book a letter to your parents and I was immediately on board with that because the point of this book of lo of looking at your family through a wider lens through sort of more forgiving eyes was a story i had been trying to tell actually in a documentary film that i, I kept running into roadblocks on and i'd kind of given up on and i thought well this is the way i can tell that story and and no one can take it away from me i mean this is going to be you know my voice you write that it was harder to write to your mother, to Nancy Reagan. Why? Well, we had a very challenging relationship. You know, we had a very difficult relationship. And so it's always been easier for me to write about my father, um, even though, you know, there was some distance and there were some... Um, issues I guess you would have to say uh, with him um, mostly political um, but but my mother and I I described it in this book as sort of America and Russia I mean we were just it was just a complicated relationship and you know when she died and I and I eulogized her I, I wrote about in here that I worked on that eulogy for a really long, not a really long time, but I mean a couple of weeks before she died, because we knew that the time was coming. The doctor told us like maybe she has a couple of weeks. So I started working on the eulogy then because I wanted to, I wanted to eulogize her by writing about the times in my life when there was just love there, when she showed up as a mother and, and when there was just love there. and. There weren't a lot of them, you know, but those are part of the story too. And that was that was how I eulogized her. And that's actually what gave me the idea of um, of the theme of the, the, you know, documentary I wanted to do, which became this book instead, that it, whatever your relationship with your family is, if you can you look at can you find some moments when there was just love there when there was tenderness there and acknowledge that that's part of your story too i want to read but, go ahead oh, okay go on no i i i'm done go ahead <laughs> this is from the book dear mom and dad anger was a shield i held up to try to protect myself in battle since the battles between you and me were becoming so inescapable it was an inadequate shield you would always be the victor, but it was all I had. Your anger at me was an ever-present thing. Even when it was hidden from view, I knew it was there. I waited for it to emerge and it was formidable. You didn't let it out when dad was around, at least not that I ever saw. I never witnessed or overheard a fight between the two of you, and it's possible that he didn't believe you had a temper since you had a talent for not seeing what he didn't want to see. It was a destructive dance that ensnared you and me, and it happened mostly when Dad went out of town for his General Electric business trips. I came to realize that it didn't matter what I did or didn't do, you were going to lash out at me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
my mother was a formidable person and but one of the things you know that i <clears throat> that i've written about in this book is that when i look at old home movies and and even old photographs um I, I don't see that then. There was tenderness there. There was, at least what I'm looking at when I look at those, um, there was a, a joy in motherhood when I was small and a toddler. And as I grew, that that her anger started to, um, to manifest. But I think what's really important in a family is to is to look at who your parents, what your parents brought to the task of parenting. Who were they before they became your parents? You know, we tend as children to think that our parents' lives began when they became our parents, right? And then when we grow up, we go, oh, no, they actually had lives before that. They had childhoods too, right? And my mother was dumped at three years old by her mother with relatives who she'd never met before, left there for six years. And then her mother returned and said, oh, I met this doctor and we're going to get married, and we're all going to move to Chicago now. She was nine then. So I don't know if she ever got any nurturing in, with the relatives, with her cousins that she lived with. Um, you know, my mother was an expert at, at redacting and editing her history. But those are the facts of it. So um, I, I, think, I think a lot of her um, resentment toward me was the resentment of what she didn't get when she was a little girl. That's my theory. You know, that's that's how I um, I tend to look at it now. And you know, the thing about anger, the passage you read, um, it it bothered me so much in in my life that I did I had this I held on to this anger, you know, for a, a really long time. It was like my lifeline, and. Um, I, I needed to say to myself, you don't need that lifeline anymore. You actually can swim, you know, you can let go of that and you'll be fine. You won't drown. But along with that, I, I, I kind of had to say, you know, I, I'm going to be grateful for that anger at the same time that I don't want it anymore and I'm, and I need to let go of it. I need to be grateful for the fact that it was my lifeline for a while. As I said, my mother's a formidable person. So I think my anger was a survival tool. And and it helped me let go of it by say, by recognizing that. And, you know, almost going, almost talking to my own anger and saying, thank you. You know what? You served your purpose. Um, you, you helped me survive. Um, and I don't need you anymore, if that makes sense. Patty Davis, you talk about the crowded purgatory of unanswered questions that our family has created. You didn't know you had a half-brother and a half-sister for a long time. Is that correct? That is correct. I was eight years old when I found out that I had a half-brother and half-sister. But here's the, the interesting thing. There are um, photographs of me in the previous house to the GE house, our house on Amalfi Drive, when I was like two, three years old. Um, and Michael and Maureen were there. Obviously, I don't have a memory of that, but they they were there in photographs. And I've asked Michael. I said, "Well, did you think then that I mean, he's he's um, eight years older than me? So did you think then that I knew who you were?" And he said, "Well, I pretty much assumed, yeah, that you did." <clears throat> but then when we once we moved um, to the GE house, um, he wasn't around anymore. So I was eight years old. And I was told that I had an older half-brother, and that was explained to me by explaining that my father was married before, and he had a son and a daughter from that marriage. Therefore, he's half your brother. Um, I didn't really acknowledge the half part. I was just excited that I had – Ron was like two at the time. I was eight. And – I was excited that I had an older brother. I thought, oh, the house is going to be much more fun and I'll have like this, you know, teenage boy to hang out with and play with and he's, he'll be so old and fun and stuff, you know, and I was so excited. And at that same time, there was a blonde woman who used to come by sometimes and talk to my mother and they'd sit in the den and have, you know, what seemed like a very adult conversation, which I was never 
privy to. And I just knew her as Maureen. And um, so after I found this out that Michael was going to come live with us, I, she was over one day and I said to her, I have a, I have a brother, I have another brother and he's coming to live with us. And she leaned down and she said, well, don't you know who I am? I'm your sister. And I burst into tears and started crying and ran into my room and like threw myself in the bed. I was crying and crying because suddenly the world seemed out of control. You know, suddenly I was thinking, well, how many more are there? I mean, like one was exciting, but now there's like somebody else. And I like, is every week, am I going to have another sibling? (laughs) It just seemed like out of control. And what I wrote in this book was, this was when I was writing to my father, a passage when I was writing to my father. Um, I I said, I know, Dad, how much you like movie scenes. If this were a movie, we would cut to 37 years later when um, his, his um, biographer is writing Dutch and we um, were having coffee and he said, I'm going to dedicate the book to Christine Reagan. And I went, who's that? <laughs> I was, I was eight years old again in the, in our hallway. Right. Um, thinking how many more siblings do I have? Christine was the baby that Jane Wyman lost after two days. Um, she you know, she died two days after after birth, who my father never got to meet because he had contracted pneumonia, which he almost died from. So. And Edmund Morris dedicated Dutch to Christine, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah, that's what he said that day. Yes. Yeah. I, um, yeah. Patty Davis, you tell the story for the first time, I believe, about your grandmother, Edith, Nancy Reagan's yes. mother. What happened? Yeah. Yes. So my grandmother, Edith, and I haven't ever told this story before, really to anyone, um, for the same reasons that people don't, you know, shame, embarrassment, usually, and you just don't want to go there. But she had a habit of touching me inappropriately. I, I was one of those girls who developed kind of early, which I was, you know, very self conscious about. So she would she would grab my breast. Sometimes she would grab me between my legs and not when anybody else was around. So she frightened me. I tried to never be alone with her, but I wasn't always successful about that. And um, it went on for a while. And as I said, I never told anybody about it. And the reason that I wrote about it in this book, I didn't write about it just to be salacious or anything like that. The reason I wrote about it is that when my grandmother died, I didn't go to her funeral and I lied. I said I was gonna be out of the country and my mother never forgave me for it. Even though I apologized to her several times, I think over the years, I didn't tell her that I'd lied. <laughs> I wasn't really out of the country, but but I did apologize. But you know, the reason I didn't go is because this is a woman who had been inappropriate with me and um, I didn't feel like going and honoring her after her death. But what I think now is that I should have gone. If I were the person then that I am now, I would have gone. Because I think that's how you get over things like that. You be the bigger person. You show up, right? You remember about that person what they forgot about themselves, that they are not supposed to do things like that to a child that they're supposed to be um, a responsible adult and and they're supposed to be better than that. You remember that when they clearly didn't. And as I said, that's how you get past that. So that's the reason that I wrote about, that I, I, I had a very clear reason for writing about it. When did you become Davis rather than Reagan? I became Davis um, a little before, I, I think I was like, Hmm, I'm very bad at ages and time. I think I was maybe like around, I, I think it was before I was 18. So I, 16, 17, something like that. I wanted to be a writer. I was writing um, poetry at the time. And um, and I wanted my own name. My father was governor of California. So I was the governor's daughter. 
I didn't want to be the governor's daughter, but I was. And I just wanted my own identity. You know, I just wanted somebody to 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 look at me, to listen to me, maybe for a few minutes without knowing who my father was and without putting me in a box. And um, I but I honestly did not want my parents to get mad at me. So I thought, well, if I use my mother's maiden name, Davis, there are five zillion Davises in the world. I mean, that's a pretty innocuous name. So I remember sitting in their bedroom and saying to them, you know, I just I just want to have like my own identity. I want people to just just look at me as a person for five minutes before they realize who I am, that I'm the governor's daughter. Um, and they actually understood. I think it did. I think it did help that I was you know, choosing a family name. But from that point on, I I used Davis all the time. Are you pretty anonymous today? Can you walk down the street and not be stopped or recognized? Um, yeah, for the most part. I mean, sometimes sometimes people recognize me. I mean, obviously I'm doing a lot of publicity for this book, so, so um, you know, now somebody will probably go, hey, I just saw you on C-SPAN. Um, but yeah, I, li I live a pretty quiet life. I mean, certainly nothing like when my father was president and heavily armed men were following me. What's your relationship these days with Ron Jr. and uh, with Michael? Um, we're not really in each other's lives that much. I mean, we have a civil relationship, but we're not really in each other's lives. And I, I don't want to go into, you know, too much detail about that but I think there is a there is an important point probably to be made here for for other people who have you know fractures in their family and who don't have relationships with with people in their family and that is that if you don't have a foundation in in your family if you didn't grow up with a real strong foundation in your family it's really hard to build relationships without that. You are building a house on sand. And I think you just have to recognize that, you know? I mean, I've talked to people, you know, I ran a, my Alzheimer's support group for, for six years. So I've heard a lot of family stories and I've heard countless stories about people trying to um, create a, a family relationship when there wasn't a strong one before. And you know, to think that you're going to enter someone else's life, enter someone else's family, because that that person probably is a family by then, um, as a family member is kind of magical thinking, right? It's just you might have a relationship, some kind of relationship, but you're not really going to be a family because you didn't. That wasn't formed early on. Patty Davis, many words have been written about your parents love story it's rather legion did you did you see that did you experience that um yes my parents as i've described them were two halves of a circle and um you know after my mother died maria shriver was interviewing me and she said you know when you were younger did you have that sense that you know sort of everybody else was outside of their relationship and I said to her, yeah, I said, it's, you know, it's like I knew that they, they loved us, but if pirates came and spirited us away, they'd miss us, but they'd be fine. That was kind of the feeling, right? They'd always be fine themselves, which, you know, is, and it's, this is a, a, definitely in this, in this book, it makes me sad now for for my mother well for both my parents really but mostly for my mother because when my father got Alzheimer's she didn't have a, a natural inclination to reach out to us I mean I was there for her but a lot of times she didn't really know how to accept that because again that foundation wasn't there underneath us as a as a family so so she didn't have that that fold of a family around her we would have been there um, if we had had that foundation, but we didn't. Back to your book, Dear Mom and Dad, quote, someone once said to me, 
that they thought the reason you didn't like me was because I was the flaw in your romantic illusion with dad, and there might be some truth to that. The story you have told about you and dad has the two of you being instantly smitten, falling head over heels in love and never looking back. You even use phrases like, my world began when I met Ronnie. But the reality was a bit different. From everything I've heard, dad wasn't entirely exclusive to you, and as a newly divorced man, he was not exactly anxious to get married again. In fact, he had made an agreement with Jane Wyman that he wouldn't remarry before she did. But there was no marriage proposal until you told dad you were pregnant. You told him over dinner at Chasson's restaurant, and according to Michael, dad excused himself, used the restaurant phone to call Jane and tell her, mostly because he didn't think he could honor the agreement he'd made with her. I wonder if you ever knew about that call. Yeah. Well, listen, this is not breaking news that I was born seven months after my parents got married. I mean, people have known that for a very long time. Um, but it is it was an interesting thing for me to explore in this book that um, I, I my mother was not a careless person. She just wasn't. She was a very deliberate person. And as I wrote about, I in the only time I ever broached the subject with her, and I can't remember, I know it was on the phone, but I can't remember what gave me the courage to, to broach the subject, but uh, something led to it. And I said to her, well, when you told dad you were pregnant, like what would you have done if he'd said, well, it's not mine? There was no DNA. We're talking about 1952. It was, there was no DNA testing then. Um, so he, you know, he could have said it's not mine. And she said, I knew he wouldn't do that. And I thought, this, this was my mother. I mean, she had a certainty about what she wanted and, and a certainty that she was going to succeed in what she, in what she wanted. And I remember another conversation earlier, um, when she told me that when they were dating my father said to her oh you shouldn't be renting your your house that's you're throwing money away you should buy a house and she was so crestfallen because she said to me i didn't want to buy my own house i wanted us to be married and buy a house together you know i wanted us to be a married couple so she definitely wanted that and um you know, when that person said to me that I was the flaw in her romantic illusion, I thought, you know, there, I think there is something to that because the proposal came because, you know, she said, honey, I'm pregnant. Um, not, you know, on a canoe when he took out a little black box with a, an engagement ring in it. You know what I mean? Patty Davis, was this book cathartic to write in any way? Yeah, I think it was cathartic. I mean, I've worked um, very hard on my on the challenges with my with my family, and it's been it's been a, a long journey of, of sort of peeling away layers. And this was sort of the last layer, you know, that I. I my intention all along for most of my life was to get to a place where I could look through more forgiving eyes, where I could look through clearer eyes. And, you know, that sounds good to say, but getting there is hard work. You know, it's kind of a pilgrim's path. And um, this is this book is the reflection of that. And my hope is that that other people will will read this and look at their own lives with their own families. I mean, you know, most families have some issues, some more than others, but, you know, we all have something. And um, so I, you know, my hope is that it's helpful to other people to, to, um, to look at their own families and to, as I said, take a step back, kind of like when you go to an art gallery, you don't stand right close to a painting, you stand back from it to see the whole picture. Here's part of the letter to your father. <clears throat> I've often wondered if you knew in the secret caverns of your heart that you wanted to lead this country, 
that your dreams were big and endless and couldn't be contained. America was always a topic of conversation, even when I was small. As the years mounted, I came to feel that America was a presence, an entity, who was sitting at the dinner table with us and getting most of the attention. Eventually, I must confess, I developed a bad case of sibling rivalry with this country. Yeah. Yeah, and that, it was interesting, that feeling of sibling rivalry with America ended um, when my father got Alzheimer's and announced it to the country and to the world. And complete strangers would come up to me and tell me about their own situations and their own, you know, people were not, this was 1994, people were not talking a lot about Alzheimer's then. So people would tell me very personal things about their mother, their father, their grandparent, or whatever. And I felt like I had a support system out in the country, people I would probably never meet again and people who I never met at all. And I, that, that feeling of resenting America for claiming so much of my father became a feeling of gratitude for support that was out there and kindness that was out there, even from people who did, hadn't agreed with his politics and didn't like his administration and all that. <clears throat> they had sympathy for what he was going through. And um, so it was, a, it was a total turnaround. What was it like to be a family on display when your father was in the Oval Office? Well, I did not like being a family on display, but it occurred to me a couple of times, actually, when I was writing this book, that there was an advantage to it because you couldn't deny, I couldn't deny any of the the things that were wrong with my family because everybody could see it, you know, even when we sort of showed up together at inaugurations or whatever. Um, it was pretty obvious, you know, that we were not <clears throat> a tightly knit family. And so I think it helped propel me to to work on everything that was wrong and work on how I was looking at things and work on changing my perceptions and my feelings, you know, because I, I felt this this pressure of, well, everything's out and everybody sees everything, right? So I think there was there was sort of a, a hidden advantage to that. But I no, I definitely didn't like it at the time. I did not like being first daughter. March 30th, 1981, where were you? So I was in my therapist's office in, um, in Santa Monica. He was an older gentleman and he worked out of his house. He'd converted his garage to, <clears throat> to his office and I was in a therapy session. And suddenly the door burst open and one of my Secret Service agents came in. And at fur instantly I was like angry because I thought, oh great, now I can't even be in therapy without the Secret Service coming in, right? And then I looked at his face and he was pale white. And he said, Patty, there's been a shooting. And I knew instantly that it was my father. And they wouldn't let me take my car. Um, I had to leave my car in, in this man's driveway for a few days till I got back from Washington. Um, they wouldn't let me or any of us get on a commercial flight. They, you know, the Secret Service has to assume the worst. So they have to assume, well, maybe there are other people out there who are just trying to take out the whole family or something. So they flew me and Michael and Maureen on an Air Force transport plane that evening. We got into Washington at like I don't know, two in the morning or something. Ron was dancing with the Joffrey Ballet. And I don't know where he came from, Oklahoma or something like that. He got on, somebody loaned their private plane to him. And anyway, that's, yeah. It was a really long day. And I, I didn't know any more than anybody else did. You know, I was listening to the news and I, I didn't know if my father would live. What was the reunion like with your parents at the hospital? Well, um, I saw my mother that morning. I slept in some little room like 
near their bedroom. And I went into her room early in the morning. She slept with my father's shirt all night to have his scent near her. <clears throat> and then we went to the hospital. And I remember when I walked in the hospital room, um, obviously my father was in his hospital bed and you know, they tilted the, the bed up a little bit. So he's a little bit of an angle. I remember looking at him and I don't know how else to exp to describe this, but there was like a light around him. I, I saw it and I thought that he died and came back. Clinically, there is nothing in the records saying that, but I still, I still believe that. Um, and also because he told a story that um, like one of the notes he wrote was um, I'm still here aren't I you know he was writing all these notes right in the hospital I'm still here aren't I <clears throat> so he told this story that he woke up in intensive care and that there were figures in white around him and he thought he had died and he wrote that note he asked for paper and it wrote that note and I didn't think about it for a while and then a friend of mine many years ago who's a doctor said Patty people the doctors in intensive care aren't dressed in white they're dressed in scrubs so whatever he saw he didn't see them so I don't know there's you know we'll never know if that really happened but that's my belief Patty Davis, you were well known during his eight years as president for disagreeing with him on issues, particularly nuclear disarmament. You got Heldon Caldicott into the White House. Is that a previously known story? Yeah, it is a previously known story. Um, I, I, there are details in here that uh, were not known, but as I wrote in here, my father didn't want any. It didn't want it to go public, which was you know, not at all what I wanted to hear because I, I really wanted, I wanted it to be out in the world that my father was meeting with an anti-nuclear activist, that he was open to, to talking to her. And then as I've written about, I had plans for like other people. I wanted this to be an ongoing dialogue between him, him and his administration and the anti-nuclear movement. I was trying to save the world, right? Um, I thought it was a really good idea. And so when I got that note uh, on my pillow in Lincoln's bedroom, when I got into the White House that evening saying, you know, I don't want anybody to know about this, I thought, oh no, this is not good. But I had to tell Helen Caldicott that, and she didn't obey that <laughs> after the meeting. She did go public with it when, and not in a favorable way. So the fact that the meeting took place, yes, was was um, was public. But there are but, you know, this is more of an inside view of it and more more details as I've written about it here. Um, but, you know, I think I'm not trying to brag, but I think I had a really good idea. And I think it would have been good for my father to have these these open dialogues with with people on that side. I wanted to bring Daniel Ellsberg, who was very um, involved in the anti-nuclear movement, to the White House. I mean, I had a whole roster of people I wanted to bring and have these ongoing conversations. And obviously, <clears throat> that died on the vine after, after Helen Caldicott's meeting with him. Another issue you write about, quote, you would probably be amused that after my public rebellion against your policies, I have occasionally taken on the task of trying to explain a few of your positions, not to excuse or endorse, but simply to shed light on how I feel you arrived at some of them. Like abortion, I've peeled away the layers of rigid disagreement that always weighed us down, looking for stories underneath. When you were governor of California and an abortion bill was on your desk, you wrote and spoke of your soul searching, the hours you spent in contemplation over a woman's intimate decision to end her pregnancy. You ended up signing a bill that, for the first time, allowed abortions for rape, incest, and dangers to the mother's physical or mental health. Yes, that abortion bill that, that my father 
uh, wrote when he was governor, signed off on when he was governor, was that was revolutionary. Um, because, you know, prior to that, in California, you couldn't get an abortion. I mean, I, I knew women who went on a bus to Mexico and were blindfolded and taken into clinics and given abortions. So that was quite revolutionary. Um, his his position on abortion was actually the first op-ed I, I wrote for the New York Times. And, um, you know, I, I wanted in that op-ed and also in this book to, to um, you know, really kind of pick apart how he came to his, the soul searching that he did say that he did, and I believe that he did, but how that related to Christine Reagan, who you, we talked about before, and the fact that he lost this, this two-day-old baby who he never got to meet, and if he ever grieved over her, he never said anything about it. Um, I, I suspect he kind of pushed that away from him. But I do think that that experience with Christine had a lot to do with his, with his views on abortion, especially when he would hear the dialogue that comes from, you know, anti-abortion people. I think it it hit home for him in having lost this little infant that was just that was just born. Um, I I ha it is. It is interesting that I have taken on the task of trying to explain some of his positions, even ones that I don't agree with, but um, I'm an unlikely person, I suppose, to have done that. But but I think it's it's part of, like I said, looking at things through, through a wider lens and looking at it through um, a more willingness to consider what what is going on with that with that other person. You know, I think I, um, I think I thought in in years past when I have written things that weren't very, you know, favorable toward my parents. I think I was coming from the position of, well, I have to tell my truth, and you hear people say that a lot. You know, I have to tell my truth, but the thing about telling your truth is, it's not the whole truth. Other people have their truths too, and those are part of the story also. So I think that's that's certainly what I've aimed for, and I think that's what everybody should aim for. You know, what are other people's truth? It's a bigger story than just you. We're gonna look at another issue by looking at some video of your mother, and this is from 1986, and then we'll get your thoughts. Drugs steal away so much. They take and take until finally, every time a drug goes into a child, something else is forced out, like love and hope and trust and confidence. Drugs take away the dream from every child's heart and replace it with a nightmare. Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, just say no. Soon after that, those children in Oakland formed a just say no club and now, there are over 10,000 such clubs all over the country. Patty Davis, what's your reaction? Um, well, <laughs> I don't quite know what to say here. Um, I, I mean, she definitely meant well. Um, as a former drug addict, no is not in my vocabulary. So I mean, if someone had said to me, just say no, I would have gone, I'm sorry, just say what? <laughs> So, I don't, she it was a good effort. I mean, she meant well. I, I'm not. I don't know how much difference it made, but I. But she meant well. You call yourself a former drug addict. Does that mean you're sober today? I've been sober for a very long time. Yes, many many decades. I want to read one quote from the book? In the governor's years, summers were mostly spent in Sacramento. I knew no one there. It was hot and dry and miles from the ocean. I'm not sure if the two of you ever figured it out, but my remedy for this misery was to stay stoned most of the time. I brought an adequate supply of pot with me from Los Angeles and spent long hours in the pool. 
I was like a stone Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate, <laughs> just nice. hanging out under the water. My, my other activity, which you did know about, was to drive up to Folsom Prison and go shopping in the gift shop there. I'm not sure exactly how this came about, but I think it had something to do with my fondness for Johnny Cash's album that he made at Folsom. Mm -hmm. Folsom Prison Gift Shop. Yeah, so here's the, here's the funny thing about that. <laughs> um, I have an absolute clear memory of that gift shop. I mean, I, I can see walking in, there were like windows on the right, up high windows on the right, the trustees, the prisoners who were trustees sat on the left, back behind, and um, the, to ring up the purchases, and then behind them was plexiglass with, with prison guards watching them, right? And there were aisles with artwork that the, that the prisoners had done. That was what the gift shop was, all their artwork. I have I, such a clear memory of that. I have zero memory of how I ever found out that Folsom Prison had a gift shop. This was the 60s. It's not like I could have Googled it, right? I don't know how I ever found this out, nor do I know how I figured out how to get there. Because I'm not exactly a good map reader, and I sure, certainly wasn't a good map reader then. So I think this is a good reason to not do drugs, because you'll end up with little Bermuda triangles in your memory, and just things just drop into them. <laughs> One other issue we want to look at before we move on, we're going to show some video of your father. This is from September of 1985. Okay. Would you support a massive government research program against AIDS like the one that President Nixon launched against cancer? I have been supporting it for more than four years now. It's been one of the top priorities with us and over the last four years and including uh, what we have in the budget for 86, it will amount to over a half a billion dollars that we have provided for research on AIDS in addition to what I'm sure other medical groups are doing. and. Uh, we have $100 billion or $100 million in the budget this year. It'll be $126 million next year. So um, this is a top priority with us. Yes, there's no question about the seriousness of this and the need to find an answer. Patty Davis, you write extensively in Dear Mom and Dad about this issue. Yeah. I had been wanting to write about the, you know, AIDS for a long time. Um, writing it as an op-ed just never, you know, the situation never came up where it would have fit it currently in any in anything. But I'd been wanting to write about it only because I wanted to bring in some other aspects of it. I, I mean, I can't excuse what wasn't done for so many years. Um, I, I have I, I can't excuse it. I and and in some ways I can't explain it. Um, but I, there are people who still think that my father just didn't care about gay people um, and or that he even that he was homophobic, which is, was not true. I mean, I grew up around gay people. There was a gay lesbian couple who babysat us and who were at our house and shared holidays with us. And um, so I, I wanted to bring in some other aspects of it in terms of people in his administration who were homophobic and who who did not want him to address the AIDS issue and and who successfully for a while kept things from him because you know one of my father's flaws and we all have flaws was that he delegated things to other people and believed what they told him so um I just, you know, I just, I just wanted to, and to offer some other aspects of the whole situation, but it's, I, as I wrote in here, for a man whose timing was usually pretty impeccable, his timing was off. That whole, the, the for years on this. I mean, I, I don't. I, I can't give, you know, a clear-cut explanation for that, and it's heartbreaking. By 86, I can't, I can't remember what year Rock Hudson died. Was that 86? Around there, yes. 
Yeah. So when Rock Hudson died, nobody could keep from him the severity of AIDS. You know, I mean, his friend just died from it. Um, and that was the turning point when he finally, you know, was fully informed about the seriousness of it. But, you know, it's, I just felt a responsibility to, to write about it. And as I've also written about in here, um, years ago, I approached the Reagan Library about, about tackling this subject. As far as I know, there is nothing at, at the library about, about AIDS, which is kind of like, you know, if the Nixon Library didn't, have anything about Watergate, which maybe they don't. I don't know. I've never been to the Nixon Library, but it's kind of a big thing to, it's kind of a big omission, you know? And um, so I, I, I wrote a long letter to somebody at the library and long email and <clears throat> said, look, I think, I think if you don't talk about something, then people's misperceptions and people's harsher, harshest judgments stay intact. So let's talk about it. Let's even do like an evening. Let's get, let's, you know, just put it all out there and talk about all aspects of it. And, you know, I got a response saying, oh, that's interesting. We'll discuss it. And then I never heard anything else. I don't think they really discussed it. And in her latest book, her 13th, Patty Davis writes, quote, it's somewhat startling when we realize that our parents had lives before they became our parents, often complicated lives with pain and loneliness and unresolved trauma. We start to understand, once we're older, that the only way to inch past the turbulence that was injected into our own lives is to figure out the art of forgiveness. That isn't an easy task. It isn't as if there is a manual for it. It's like learning to dance with no accompanying music. We stumble, get confused, search for a rhythm that will anchor us. The book, Dear Mom and Dad, a letter about family, memory, and the America we once knew. Thanks for joining us on Q&A. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast on our C-SPAN Now app.